Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, I'm Bex. And I'm Laura. And we're here to talk openly and honestly about miscarriage, stillbirth and all pregnancy loss. We aim to smash the taboo surrounding these subjects. And rebuild the topic in a way to support and educate women. Rather than isolate and shame them. Welcome to the worst girl gang ever. So, Sital, it's so lovely to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us um, in the Worst Girl Gang Ever podcast. Mm. That was a different way to uh, introduce it. We've never heard <laughs> that before. Thank um, you very much for having me. I'm chuffed all the way from Berlin. Yes, sunny Berlin as well, which sunny is Berlin. incredible. Amazing. And perhaps we could start by you just sort of introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about how you came to join this gang. Yeah, so I'm Sital Savla. My Instagram handle is at Savlafer. And I started out as a food blogger. So that's where Savla uh, came from. I wanted to have something with my surname and then something that sort of conveyed, you know, the finer things in life, the fact that I studied French as well. So I got all of that there in that nice, neat little name. And I had that space. And then as that was all going on and I was writing restaurant reviews and going out and interviewing chefs, I was dealing with infertility in the background, my husband and I. Mm -hmm. And on Mother's Day 2019, I decided to use my blog to talk about that publicly. So my first miscarriage and then our first two IVF cycles. And ever since then, I've been doing a lot of fertility advocacy work to support people in a similar situation, to raise awareness, and then also do my bit to smash uh, stigmas. Amazing. Which there are many in South Asian communities, as you can yeah, imagine. Sure, and we'll definitely get on to a bit to that. Get, you know what I'm trying to say. We'll get on to that. That's all right. I feel better now about fluffing <laughs> but, um, the stigma thing. What I was going <laughs> to say was, um, so on that on that Mother's Day in 2019, what was the response when you shared for the first time? It was massive. I was so scared before pressing publish because yeah. it's something so personal. And even though we'd been open with close friends and good, uh, sorry, close friends and family it's something to then just shout about it and tell the entire world. Mm. So I was very nervous, but the reaction, I couldn't have hoped for anything better. There was nothing negative. I thought that people might come back and say, well, you're bringing shame on the family and all this judgment and criticism. Why would you want to air your dirty laundry like that? Keep that in the family. No one said anything. It was just a lot of support and a lot of messages from people I hadn't heard from in a long time saying they'd been through something similar as well. And it was so nice to feel represented to see someone who looked like them talking about yeah. similar issues from a medical emotional and then cultural perspective yeah. as well 
See, so what um, what made you think that was going to be the response that you got? Why did you think that it was going to have judgment and it was going to be negative? I think in our communities, there's just a lot of fear and judgment and blaming and shame for everything. There's a lot of pressure to be perfect. And some of that comes from being immigrants and dealing with discrimination and wanting to do the best you can in the face of all this adversity. And then that sort of feeds down into the next generations. You know, we work very hard. And actually, I just posted about that on Instagram yesterday. I struggled to relax because my schedule as a kid was just packed full of extracurricular activities. It wasn't really the done thing to just sit there and chill and read a book or something and go play. So that's one part of it. And then there's a lot of what will people think? You know, we do worry about, you know, all the curtain twitching and, you know, being the source of gossip as well. You don't want to give anyone any reason to criticize you and have the upper hand. So that's probably where that came from as well. I'm glad that the response that you got wasn't negative. I'm glad that, yeah. (laughs) And it's really, it's just really empowering for people that are going through it. Like you say, to see someone who looks like them, that that is, is going through it too. And since you've been open about your losses, have there been more people from the Asian community speaking out about it? Yeah, there were a few at that time as well. So we're going back now to about 2017, 2018, somehow I discovered the TTC community. I can't remember how. It was one of those things you just see a post or someone had shared something and you go down the rabbit hole. Mm. And there were a few people, but not many. And even now, there aren't that many, especially talking about donor conception, which is something that we may get onto later about my journey. But there are more people and more men as well, which is great. So things are changing and it'll take a long time to sort of overcome all those stigmas. So at least get to a place where we're normalizing conversations yeah yeah just that it's it's very different there are a lot of pressures and as I touched on earlier with being immigrants you know there are a lot of extra things that we have to challenges that we have to deal with and you know you've got the medical side of things you know dealing with infertility and miscarriage and then on top of that you know being unable to talk to people sometimes you can't even confide in your parents because you're worried about their perception of things and how they'll think of you. And and it's a very lonely place to be. So that's a big part of why I talk about it. I have that support. I'm very fortunate on both sides of the family, myself and my husband's side, that they are in full support. They don't always understand, Mm. but they are willing to listen. And I think that's a big step forward. So I want to then pay it forward in a way for the people who were there for me and still are. A lot of them I haven't met. They're just strangers on the internet. And I I say just, but I don't want to minimize it actually, because they, some of them provide more support than people that I know in my real life. Absolutely. Mm. I hear you there. So where are you on your journey now? <laughs> yeah, I always have to say it that way as well. <laughs> God, the journey. At the moment, we're sort of taking a break. So we had that really brutal mis- miscarriage back in June. That's when we found out last year. And it was such a long experience. We went for a medical management because I was afraid that doing a DNC would potentially cause scarring and that would lead to further issues down the line. And we have plenty as it is when it comes to infertility. So I didn't want to add to that. And we've just been enjoying Berlin now that things are sort of opening up and the weather's getting better. And we just didn't really want to rush back into treatment. So that was our fifth cycle and our first one using a donor egg. 
And we've got two embryos that uh, are in the freezer in our London clinic now. So, yeah, we need to make a decision about what to do with that. But just thinking about that feels really overwhelming. Right. The potential of getting pregnant again and then having to go through another miscarriage. Um, Tell us about donors, because it was you that posted recently, wasn't it, about the, the lack of sperm donors in this in the South Asian community? Yeah, yeah, I wrote an article for the Metro about that, where mm. are all the South Asian egg donors. And there are different um, challenges with egg donors and sperm donors. Mm. This one focused on egg donation. Yeah, there's, um, we decided not to go with an Indian donor because in the UK, the average wait list is about two to three years, or at least it was when we were looking at it a few years ago. Oh. And when you're sort of in your late 30s, early 40s, you just don't have that kind of time to play with. No, you want to get cracking, don't you? Exactly. And yeah. we'd already had... Three, four failed cycles using my own eggs at that point. And I didn't actually want an Indian donor, which is quite rare for an Indian woman to say, and an Indian couple as well. But I think it's because Neil was Indian, so I knew that our heritage would be preserved in that way. Yeah. Also, I didn't want to wait. I just wanted to get on with it. And I thought it was an opportunity in a way to introduce another heritage, another background into the mix that we wouldn't normally have. So we went with, ideally, <laughs> our plan was a Portuguese donor. In the end, it was an Ecuadorian one uh, that we were matched with, which is pretty exciting. That's yeah. really cool. Uh, and was, it, was there any yeah. reason to choose Ecuadorian or Portuguese? No, or- it was just um, the donor that was presented to us that matched my physical characteristics. Okay. And our clinic, they have large uh, access to large uh, donor banks in Spain and Portugal, And Portugal was a big decision because we wanted to have a non-anonymous donor. So when the child, Uh, potential child, would turn 18, they would have access to the donor's identifying information. And that was very important to me. That's another big consideration as well, whether you want to go down the anonymous or non-anonymous route. There are so many considerations. A lot. I spoke to Becky, um, Becky Kearns, recently. And just so many things that I've not even Because she chose to have anonymity, I can never say that, anonymity, didn't she? She went for an anonymous mm. donor. Mm-hmm. And then that, but, the, the, but that as an instant decision for you at that time has its own ramifications, doesn't it? Further down the line when she said she worried that she felt she denied her children the possibility of, you know, but you don't know all that stuff at the no. time. You're just sort of feeling around in the dark, trying to make the best decisions you can with the information. Yeah. I just want a baby. Why does it have to be? <laughs> exactly. That's the thing. You're sort of fixated on getting pregnant. You can't really see beyond that point. Mm-hmm. And yeah. as Becky was saying, each individual situation, you know, we're all so different. We have different concerns and preferences. And going back to the decision not to have an Indian donor, part of that for me was because I didn't, if we did have a child and I saw that, you know, that Indian kind of the, the fully Indian gene staring back at me, I would know that 50% of that didn't come from me and it would feel like more of a failure, if that makes sense. Really? It's always a bit difficult to explain that, but, yeah. you know, it would remind me that another woman was able to do what I couldn't, mm-hmm. even though going down the donor route and getting a, an egg donor would involve another woman. But for some reason, it felt more palatable I guess easier to accept if it was a non-Asian woman oh wow so Ecuadorian I've been to Ecuador have you been nice no I haven't I'd love to go yeah it's 
pretty cool place. Did anything crazy happen? Did you get held up by knife points? Is that where you got held up by knife points? No, no, no. That are oh, that there's a place in Ecuador called Kilatoa. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but there's this big lake in the in the top of the mountains. And um, I got a I hitched a lift on the back of a truck with a few chickens and men with machetes. Sounds legit. Yeah. It's not a bad and there was a rabid dog up there. <laughs> yeah, there was. Go to Ecuador. Uh, not what I expected from this conversation, but I mean, <laughs> surely you came to expect the unexpected. <laughs> yeah, that is true. So, what you say? How long is your journey? Sorry, shit word again. How long um, has has that been for you so far? We've been trying for six years, and it started on Christmas Day, twenty fifteen, when we found out that I'd fallen. Oh, I hate saying fallen pregnant. I got pregnant naturally. Yeah, And that was a big surprise because we'd been married for eight years at that point. And all of this pressure to procreate from family and community and society had sort of pushed me in the other direction. I felt that that's all anyone wanted from me. And I was hearing all these constant comments about time not being on your side and you need to hurry up before your womb shrivels up, you know, these kind of things. It was just mortifying. And I just thought, well, there are other things I want to do. I'm not quite ready for it. And who and, did that, sorry to interrupt you, who did that sort of pressure come from? Did you feel it came from society or was it friends or family or? Everyone. There was Everyone. a lot from family, a lot of uh, elder family members. So, you know, the older generation and uncles and aunts and things. Well, mainly women, actually. There, mm-hmm. there weren't many uncles who said anything to me directly, but it will all, always be comments about, well, is your turn next and you've been married for a year now hurry up there's no younger people are just excited for you and that's just the the natural way of things and they expect it to happen happen like that that's the thing there's just a lot of pressure to be perfect in our communities from when you're a kid you know it feels like practically from the moment you just enter the world you have to be you know the perfect daughter and sister then you know have the perfect kind of education find the right man and then be the perfect daughter-in-law, ideally by producing sons as well within the right time frame. So yeah, did you feel the pressure coming from, particularly from your in-laws? No, no, they were great, actually, oh, thankfully. Right. But I've heard some horror stories. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was you, the wider community, yeah. Just general expectation as well. And would you say that pressure from, from people within your community is huge? Is that what frightens people, do you think, of, of, of talking about their experience? Yeah, it really does. And then also because it's a patri- ugh, patriarchal community. Yeah, yeah. Like um, there is a, a tendency to blame the woman, even if the diagnosis is on the husband's side. And, you know, if you kind of put your head above the parapet and say, we're having problems, you know, there is a chance that people will come for you and criticize you and label you as a defective wife and woman that may reflect badly on your family, even though this is a medical issue. Yeah. whether it's you know on the female or the male side you know, it's not our fault but we are still blaming ourselves and then it's sort of heaped on top of us yeah we do blame ourselves a lot don't we as women yeah. um and the trouble is even if it's even if the diagnosis is on the man that doesn't get found out till years down the line like mm-hmm. it, it's like it's they're completely forgotten about in this whole situation yeah. they just test us put wands up us and oh god wonder that jazz and uh yeah it's only when when there's found to be if and when there's found to be nothing wrong with the woman that they even think about testing the guys um 
yeah, like you say, it's the patriarchy, isn't it? Yes, very much so. And there's no getting away from that. And that's why I just want to talk about all these various aspects of it so people can consider them. You just don't know. And I didn't feel empowered at the beginning. I sort of felt like I was just going along with everything. I didn't have the energy, the headspace to look into anything and do my research. I know some people get on Google straight away, find the forums, learn all there is to learn about it, read, listen to podcasts. But just the idea of doing that felt too much for me. So I was sort of swept along for a couple of years. And it was only in my third cycle where I thought, okay, now I, I know what I'm doing, what's expected. Now I feel I can question the doctors as well. Mm. And what was it that that uh, pointed you towards IVF? You said you mentioned that you you had your first pregnancy was um, Christmas Day, mm-hmm. and then so what was it that you had a loss then, and then you started IVF after that, or did you experience more than one? Loss? Yeah, so we it was Christmas Day. We found out, and that was a massive surprise. And then a couple yeah. of weeks later, I started bleeding, spotting, and then. I tried not to think the worst, but again, went on to Google and, you know, I put two and two together and understood what was most likely happening to me. And then the miscarriage was confirmed after that. It was absolutely devastating, but a catalyst in a way, because we realized that there was clearly a problem we needed to investigate if we'd been married for eight years and nothing had really happened. We hadn't kind of been actively trying, but we weren't not trying either. Mm. So... Yeah, that's when we started. We went to our GP, did all the fertility tests and waited a year for all the results and things and finally got referred and did our first round of IVF on the NHS. I was about 35, 36 at that point. So I think that's why it was all expedited. If I'd been younger, I think maybe they would have said just wait a bit longer or something. Yeah. Yeah. And um, we talk a lot about the ugly feelings. So the, the jealousy and the resentment that you feel towards other people who seem to get pregnant easily or or even not easily Mm -hmm. just just get pregnant um and how do you manage you get do you get those feelings if you do how do you manage them it is tough because you're happy for them especially if they've been on a journey because you know how difficult that is after so many failed rounds but then you feel that sting you feel so sad for yourself and you just think well why not us why not me I'm doing everything I can I'm going to the best clinics I have access to, I'm following all their advice. And even then I'm not getting pregnant or I do. And then there's no heartbeat. You know, why are we in this situation? And no one can really explain anything either. That's the worst. If they could give you some kind of reason, then maybe you can explore that. And it it gives you a bit of motivation to keep going, a bit of hope. The jealousy, the envy, the anger, it's it's all there. And I think we try and shy away from it because it's considered as being you know dark and negative and it's very hard to voice those those feelings but thankfully I have a great support network people I've met through the TTC community and also therapy and you know that's helped me a a lot and I'm seeing an Indian therapist who I never thought I would because I didn't think I needed that cultural aspect to be acknowledged and that I needed to talk about that but it really does feed into a lot of what you're experiencing because of the pressure that I mentioned and the expectations and intergenerational yeah. trauma. And I guess so you need as much explaining to someone who also has lived within that sort of culture and they must understand 
It makes all the difference, actually. Yeah. <laughs> but I needed to be ready to sort of get to that stage. I've had various other therapists. They've all been white and it's been fine and they've helped me. But at this juncture, after the miscarriage and all the fertility trauma of the past five, six years, I, I felt ready to sort of go in a different direction. But yeah, just to go back to answer that question, I think sometimes on social, it's easier to, to mute. I've unfollowed people as well. And I, I do feel a bit bad for doing that. You know, I kind of say congratulations and then just wish them well and move away from it to protect myself. And I don't think we should feel, anyone should feel guilty for doing that. Mm. Agreed. Yeah. Going back to what you were saying about your therapist, I just think that the it's important to say and to recognize that the power of identification is absolutely huge. No matter what the situation, I think this whole community is so strong and powerful because we hear a story and we see someone. And if we can see on or hear our story within that person's narrative, we, we feel less alone. It just decreases isolation, doesn't it? And that essentially is what you've helped do with your, with your community. And when you shared your story originally, as you said, on Mother's Day 2019, it must have opened the door for so, so many people to feel like it was okay to feel that their feelings and experience are valid and, and acceptable, however that looks, and to yeah. actually be brave enough to sort of share the, share the, say their, their story, giving others, you know, it's such a knock-on effect, isn't it? Because it, by sharing your story, it gives others permission to do the same. So that's exactly it. I was going to say that as well. It gives permission and you just need someone to validate what you're going through as well, because you're so in your head about it all. And I remember just how, lonely it felt at the beginning even though I had friends and family I could talk to but and even people who'd been through IVF as well but sometimes if it was a few years ago and you sort of move on to the next phase and you have new challenges to deal with and you just think I I feel so abnormal you know and I wanted to tell people that you're not and it's you're not alone you know there are other people going through this you don't have to go online and tell the world but you know you it helps just to talk to one other person and if you can see someone who looks like you talking about it you know my dms are always open and I'm amazed by the number of messages I get from people who are confiding in me they haven't spoken to their nearest and dearest about things but it's easier sometimes to speak to strangers what's your advice to people who are are going through this and haven't been able to speak to their family and friends about it that maybe there is someone in their circle that they could talk to who is going through it or who would understand, who would offer empathy because some of my closest friends have no idea. They don't even want kids, but they are just full of empathy through the events that they've been through in their life, loss that they've experienced. And that helps them to be there and just hold that space for you. Mm. And if, if there isn't someone that they can talk to, there are always people like myself. You know, I'm not the only South Asian advocate out there. And I, I know that there are others who are trying to achieve the same objectives and we're always there to listen sometimes you just need to vent you just need to get it out and not even have anyone respond necessarily I think I love the phrase that you just use holding space for people because that to me evokes such a feeling of like when you haven't got the strength to hold your own space you need someone there to hold it for you and holding that space the way I perceive it to look is that it's up to you what you do with it you just need it held yeah. for you. And it's up to you with what, how, how you say what you say. If you say anything at all. If you say anything at all. But you've got that space to grieve. Because I think a huge part of this, the problem, which we're all dealing, the same problem, despite, you know, what community you're, you are with, is that 
we are, feel invalidated because mm. everyone who comes with their emotional plasters doesn't know what to say and sort of sweeps it under the carpets with well-meaning platitudes starting with at least it's oh, completely invalidating and all we want to yeah. do is grieve the loss of our baby and try and um, cope with the future and how we how we navigate life going forward and I think that holding space for someone is such a lovely phrase because it's just exactly what's needed yeah that is hard the platitudes actually I was as you were talking that came to my mind that's one of the reasons I imagine a lot of people don't open up as well along with the fear of criticism and judgment because you know people will say at least it happened early in the case of miscarriage or at least you know you can get pregnant uh at least you have each other I've been told that quite a bit you know you have your husband yes I do and I'm very grateful for that and I have a loving family and brilliant friends and a wonderful community online but I lost my baby you know and it counts even if it was eight nine weeks it was a horrific experience that will stay with me forever that trauma was and in a different country I was by myself you know I bled out in public it was just absolutely horrendous and you know it, it counts yeah of course it does I had a friend say to me once uh, she was a bit drunk um at least at least you've got scoop my husband I haven't even got anyone that, that I can have a baby with and I was like oh okay like I was like three days post DNC just out for a quiet meal with a couple of mates um yeah invalidating or what but what I was going to say to you when you were talking about holding space is last weekend or the weekend before we met Karina yes I know her she's one of your pals isn't she yeah yeah she's doing amazing work with everything she talks openly about cancer and heart failure infertility IVF and um, donor conception as well yeah as well didn't she yes yeah she did it was lovely to meet her actually she was so colorful wasn't she Mm. she was was very vibrant lovely lovely. I've actually never met her in person we've spoken a lot and we've done all these kind of panel talks and things but we've never had the chance to meet in person and and then I moved to Berlin so I sort of uh, messed that one up a little bit (laughs) yeah put the crime on that one well hopefully you (laughs) can one day now um now yeah over and there'll be an opportunity no doubt it'll be a massive natto yeah we'll need to leave hours and hours <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. so and what are you what are you doing now what's the future looking like for you in terms of what you're doing with your advocacy I think I'd like to carry on the way I'm going so I enjoy doing podcasts like these and kind of spreading the word raising awareness and reaching different people in different mm. ways I love writing that's sort of my background I'm a linguist at heart so I've been writing more articles for different publications and then also on my blog sometimes And taking part in more events as well. So I'll be uh, hosting a few sessions at the Fertility Show coming up in May. And it just, I feel very privileged to be in this position to to be able to do that. It's an absolutely shitty experience. And as we say, you know, it's the worst club with the best members. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad that I'm able to sort of use it for good. And that is really rewarding. Mm, Fantastic. Mm, well all the best we wish you lots of luck with the with the advocacy and with your next round whenever that may be yeah and who knows what the future will hold yeah absolutely and in the meantime just as you say just enjoy Berlin and what it has to offer I bet and it's going to be lovely coming into the summer oh yeah it kind of comes alive it's a bit (laughs) like London as well I guess anywhere just with a bit of sunshine and you get all the terraces and 
everything's open, music blaring. It's just a really yeah. nice atmosphere after just months of being indoors and cooped up. Yeah, yeah it's been yeah, dreary. Definitely. Yeah. One of the good things actually about the TTC, another good thing I should say about the TTC community is that when I moved here, I had a couple of friends from previous jobs who I reconnected with, but then I also met more people through Instagram yeah. because they had followed me and they live here or they'd also recently moved and they just reached oh, out and said, would you like to have a coffee? And just get together and we've become really good friends and they've been it's been so lovely to have that support in person as well because everyone else is pretty much back in the UK so I think that's get to see amazing, them often that's the amazing thing about the online community isn't it is the fact mm. that they can be everywhere like our first girl gang meetup happened in Canada didn't it yeah not with that's we amazing there. we weren't there no sadly <laughs> we got whereabouts in Canada oh I don't know we just got this picture of two of the girls two of the girls They're in the gang up, yeah. have met up in that's I don't so know cool. it, where it was. I, but I want to say Vancouver, but I'm probably wrong. Anyway, they met up. We got a photo. And it just felt so special to have been able to kind of facilitate that. Mm. Just women supporting women, being there for each other. It's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was asking because I lived in Montreal for a year as part of, uh, after I graduated, I just sort of wanted to get on the other side of the world. So if it yeah. was in Montreal, I would have been like, yay. Yeah. Oh, well, you should go to Ecuador. Yes. I would love to. <laughs> but watch out for the rabid dog on the pillar toe loop. <laughs> and the machetes. <laughs> I will do. I'll go prepared, as prepared yeah. as one can be. Take your own machete, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh, thank well, you. Thank you so much for joining us, Sita. It's been lovely to chat. Cheers. Thank you very much for having me. And Sorry. if anyone wants to connect with me, I'm going to just, like, throw in a cheeky plug there. I'm at yeah, Sablafair on Instagram, and the blog name is sablafair.com as well. We'll put all of your details in the podcast description. Thank you. Cheers. Right. Thanks very much for having me. All right. Take, Take care. care. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in. And please, please, when you have a second, rate us, review us, and share us. And let's get this taboo smashed. See you next week. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.